For 2022 to get back to it, I think that a lot of nonprofits that I'm speaking with are looking to achieve a hybrid model because they're not quite ready yet um, to, they don't want to lose the audience that they built up virtually. So that's really important. They're saying we have to have this in-person event because people want it and there's a need and we want to get back to it. But we can't forget about all of these new donors that are going to tune in because it's virtual. Um, and that does make it very expensive. You're listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast, brought to you by KevKayat.com. Kev helps nonprofit leaders deliver more impact faster and easier, so they can be mission accomplished in 40 hours a week or less. For more information, visit KevKayat.com. Because good causes deserve better results. Now... Here is the host of Nonprofit Problem Solver, Kev Kayat. Hello, and welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver, brought to you by Yachtme, the virtual events platform 100% free to nonprofits, empowered by Pod Pro Audio, making professional podcasting easy. I'm Kev Kayat. The sole purpose of this show is to help people running nonprofits. You are actually the nonprofit problem solver. You are the nonprofit entrepreneur working in your community every day. My guests and I are trying to make your job easier, more effective, by sharing practical, tactical expertise that you can act on more or less immediately. You can find further support and resources by following me on social media or at kevkayat.com, where you can get practical, tactical advice on being the best nonprofit entrepreneur you can be. So many nonprofits are struggling with a difficult decision about whether to have an event at all in 2022. But even once you've decided to go ahead with one, the tough decisions just keep coming. Is it indoor, outdoor, virtual, hybrid, live speaker, video, or some combination thereof? Corporate sponsorships and donations are down. Costs are going up because of the technology and the space requirements. How do you make all this work? How do you create a rich, exciting experience for your supporters that makes them want to give? Number one, speak to an expert like Jennifer Sapphire Whitman, who founded Sapphire Events right out of college and has been building from strength to strength ever since. She's got all the answers. Well, at least she knows what questions to ask and what the options are, which is more than half the battle. Let's hear from Jennifer about what's what with events in 2022. It is Nonprofit Problem Solver. This is episode 57. We are live on LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube. I'm your host, Kev Kayat, and today we are speaking about events because surely people are looking forward to 2022 and we want to know what we need to know in order to host and launch the best event possible for our nonprofits. So Jennifer Whitman's joining me today. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Uh, no, um, it's a, it's great. Uh, we always want to address problems that people are raising and bringing up all the time. I still hear uh, almost on a week-to-week basis, either in the Facebook group or on LinkedIn or in Clubhouse, people asking about how we should do events. Uh, so before we do that, we just first uh, thank my sponsor, Yachtme, which is the virtual events platform free to nonprofits. And it was the reason actually Jennifer and I, and I got to know each other a little bit. And uh, also remind you that this is powered by Pod Pro Audio, making professional podcasting easy. 
So uh, if you'd like to join the conversation, feel free to drop us a comment, uh, either LinkedIn, YouTube, or Facebook. We'll try and rope it into the conversation. If you are watching this at a later time, you can also drop us a comment and uh, tag Jennifer or myself, and we will try to reply to keep the conversation going. So with that, um, Jennifer, uh, tell us a little bit about what you do and how you got into doing that for, uh, in terms of doing events for nonprofits and others. Great. So uh, my company is Sapphire Events. I launched it in 2007. I think that I'm one of the very few people I have ever met that this owning my own events business is exactly what I wanted to do in high school. I went into college saying, <laughs> I want to open my own events business and become an entrepreneur and, and you know work in the event world. Um, I went to Northeastern University and completed a business program um, and entrepreneurship and marketing. And the entire time I was there, um, I volunteered for any event that I possibly could in the city of Boston. And, and there are a lot of events. There the are a lot of events. And inevitably, <laughs> I was the person at the top of the escalator that said registration this way, restrooms this way. <laughs> there were so many of them, but it gave me a chance to see everything behind the scenes and network with folks and understand the event world and what was really, you know, what to do and what not to do. And I got to meet so many different attendees at so many different events and see what they were looking for. Um, so I really thought I actually wanted to be um, a wedding planner. And I sort of started out that way after some of my internships and quickly realized it just wasn't um, for me personally fulfilling. Um, but with my internships, I worked at several nonprofits producing events, mostly conferences and fundraisers. Mm -hmm. And I said, I really want to focus on that. And um, a lot of other planners told me I was crazy and that I couldn't survive on just doing nonprofit events, but I've made it my niche and it's, it's fantastic. Um, and so the organization Sapphire Events has really grown. We're, we're now a team of seven. Um, we're Boston based, but we work with a lot of national organizations. So pre COVID right in that world, um, about 50% of our events took place in Boston and the rest across the country. Um, we also work with several venues in the greater Boston area to help them with their sales. They're all tied to nonprofit organizations. Um, and so we're on both sides of it, both like a vendor and a, and a producer of events. So you also help nonprofits who have event space. Correct. Like museums, for example, mm -hmm. uh, use those for uh, events, rent them out to other people. Absolutely. Excellent. Okay. So you've managed to... Uh, work successfully in this niche now for getting on for 15 years. Yeah. Um, can you summarize, and I can't imagine anybody better, a better position to summarize what the last two years has meant for the nonprofit event industry. I know I've heard it from executive directors and board members about uh, some of the surprising benefits of not having to do events. Oh, we were able to do something slightly different and we made more money or we did, you know, there are lots of not necessarily entirely negative things yeah. about what nonprofits learned in COVID, but from, from an industry and a planner's perspective, has it been entirely terrible? I miss people. I miss being on site. Um, actually this Monday I had my first on site event in over 18 months. It was an outdoor golf tournament. Um, so we were able to still produce it, but it was still different, right? Um, you know, I have been able to work with my clients and let them know that this is the absolute perfect time to get rid of bad habits. So the things that you're doing year after year at your events, just because you always do it, 
now you have an excuse to really examine all those pieces. You know, is it profitable? Um, are your guests looking forward to it? How labor intensive is it for your staff? So I've looked at events that way. Um, and Which is, then, interestingly, that's exactly the the types of comments that I've been getting from directors of development saying, God, we spent so much time. Uh, the numbers look good on paper, but we don't actually calculate the cost of staff time uh, leading up to it. And because we didn't have to do that this year, we were able to do so much more with our donors and prospective donors and, and so on and so forth. And so we're not really keen to go back to events the same old way. But of course, people still want to do something. Yes. So, I mean, as an organization, we um, shifted to virtual events very quickly um, and have worked with so many of our nonprofit partners. Um, I actually, in, in the Boston area, right, the big date was March 13th, Friday the 13th, we shut down. And on the 11th, I actually led the first um, COVID webinar in the Boston area. And I had over 250 nonprofits and other planners. And it was the first time that someone in the Boston area, right, we hadn't even shut down yet. So I actually gained a ton of clients with that one um, with that one one hour webinar. But nobody wanted to. Everyone's like, well, let's see what happens. And remember, at that time, everyone said, well, we'll just we'll shift our events by a few weeks. Right. right, right. And um, and then we'll shift it to summer and then to fall and then to next year. So it was a really interesting timeline. Um, Folks have definitely seen some benefits, though, of having a virtual event or shifting that way because they're now able to capture a larger audience. So if you're a national organization, we've always held your event in Boston. So much of your you know, constituency isn't able to attend or support. Um, so folks are realizing sort of the power of online, whether that's a virtual event or a virtual auction or, you know, what else can they do to raise funds and cut their costs, maybe, um, if folks aren't comfortable yet meeting in person. And people also shifted to not just entirely virtual, but started to experiment and have a lot more experience now with hybrid events. Mm-hmm. What's what's your take on on the hybrid? I think I know the answer, but I want to hear what you say. first. Sure. I let everybody know that you can absolutely do a hybrid event, but it is two different events. It is an in-person event. And it's a fully virtual event and it needs to be treated that way because you have two different audiences that you need to cater to or you'll lose them both. So some, you know, if you're if you are in person and you're going to move from cocktail reception to the ballroom for sit down, you better have something planned for those virtual guests or you're going to lose them. Um, you also then have to think very carefully about your timing and your host, your MC, so that they can interact with both crowds. And you really ideally want the folks who are at home participating virtually to be able to interact with the folks in the room at the same time so that you don't lose that sense of community, which is the whole purpose for an event. Right. So you're, so again, the, the rule of thumb for a hybrid is they are actually two events held simultaneously, one for an online audience, one for a live audience. Uh, So you have to treat them as two separate events happening Mm -hmm. at the same time. And, possibly if you can work it out technologically and and otherwise uh, find ways for them to interact with each other. Absolutely. Um, And you'll have to dedicate your staff or your team to be responsible for both sides. Um, You know, tech trouble for those virtual folks, like what arises, what's your plan for that? And then, um, making sure like if you're going to have a Q&A, for instance, on stage with your speaker, how can folks in the audience ask questions and how can folks at home ask questions. So there's a lot to think about with hybrid events. And with all this extra things to think about, has that rendered the 
staff in nonprofits less able to participate in the planning and execution of events? Are they more reliant now on uh, planners like yourself who have the skills and experience to, to pull that off? It's not something you can learn overnight. Yeah, that's a really good question. We have certainly seen an increase in a request for that portion of our services. Um, you know, so before Sapphire events usually worked with um, smaller nonprofits that had a development team, but not necessarily an in-house event team. Um, and we're seeing now, like just as you said, like the opposite. They may have an event team, but they haven't been doing you know, 25 virtual events in the last few months. So they'll bring us in to help with that portion and sort of integrate with their team. Right. And so we're slowly getting into this, how you plan a fantastic event for 2022 by laying, mm -hmm. I think, a lot of the groundwork. When you speak to uh, nonprofits, even those who have an event team, so presumably they've, they're coming with tons of experience and tons of ideas and so because it is their day job. Yeah. Is it the fact that they still makes what you might re refer to as sort of classic mistakes about how to think about what they're doing now nowadays with events? It's a good question. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, a lot of teams, they've been doing the same thing the same way for a very long time and it's worked and it's probably not going to work this year. Um, I know a lot of our, you know, not to backtrack, but I think events were so different in 2020 and folks really rallied around the different nonprofits because it was, you know, a pandemic and they knew that so many different services and so many different areas were needed that a lot of my clients and I know a lot of nonprofits across the board saw record years. And then this last year, um, a lot of nonprofits saw a drop off in their event fundraising because, you know, folks are tired, right? They, yeah. they're not giving as much and maybe just because you had an anomaly for a year and people were more generous doesn't mean you can count on that every single year. Um, and I think some nonprofits made that mistake of, of budgeting for that. One of the things I've heard from board members and particularly uh, around this drop or, or the in discussing an event, a perceived drop is the view that people have been online all day with mm -hmm. work. And in the past, an event in person event was very different from your work day. But if you're doing a virtual event, it's not that different from your work day. You're, you're probably in the same seat that you've been in all day because that's where your computer is set up and your and your camera and so on. And so it lost its luster relatively quickly because at the end of the day, people say, I need to get up and move from this desk. I want to support this nonprofit. But it's just not it's just not this event doesn't have the pull that it that it once did. I would agree with that. Um, you know, we have been really creative in finding ways to get people excited about the event and what's going to happen. And that might be, you know, number one, promising that it's not going to be three hours like it would be in person. Um, having a really tight program, um, making sure that you're making your ask earlier in the evening. Um, we've also had a lot of success with sending out, um, you know, galas in a box. So my team will help curate um, all the different products that you can send out to your attendees and you're going to get a beautifully wrapped box. And we've been you know, sourcing locally made and BIPOC and female owned products or products that really tie into the mission of the organization or looking at their sponsor list to see 
what would have a nice tie-in into those sponsors want to offer something. And then we're shipping it out to everybody's homes and asking them to open it together. Um, and we've done everything from, you know, cocktail drink kits and we'll have a guest bartender come on and lead everyone in the cheers after they make the drink. Um, there've been um, so many different celebrity chef events where you can send out the meal kits um, party poppers and things for your home office, um, and, you know, lotions and potions to reduce stress and have a mindful moment that, you know, it gets exciting to open them together and then have a conversation in the chat about what was your favorite piece and, you know, what are you drinking from Starbucks if we give everyone a Starbucks gift card or something more local. Um, so that's been a nice way to bring folks together and have them still have something physical and tangible. Um, also, they feel pretty guilty if that box is sitting on their kitchen counter and they're not at the event, right? It becomes right. like they want to go and, and be part of it. So it becomes a mass participation event, mm-hmm. uh, but but online. And, and you've obviously had to think through the logistics. It's interesting um, how the audience, in a sense, for events has changed over the last 18 months. Uh, and, and we talked a little bit about the different experience of being in an in-person event, say a, an evening with a dinner and music and, you know, maybe a show or a comedian or something like that mm-hmm. to being sat almost like we are now, you know, yeah. in, you know, in, in front of a camera. Um, what what other ways do you think the, the people who would often uh, spend a lot of time at nonprofit events, how have they, how's their experience changed or their expectations changed over the last 18 months? Um, That's a good question. I think that there's a lot of uh, interest in where their donation is still going, right? So it's important to make sure that they stay connected to the organization. So there are some donors that might be really close to an organization that normally go in and volunteer in person. And so many nonprofits are no longer able to um, offer that that it's important to show during these events or as you communicate with your donors, what is still happening on site and why you still need their participation and their donation. Um, what has changed in your organization? And you can no longer just say, well, COVID has increased the need for our services. Well, what services specifically um, and how have you been able to adapt? Are you offering more programs? Um, you know, one of my clients, Samaritans, um, which is suicide prevention, they have done a fantastic job of offering um, so many of their services virtually um, to an even wider and more participatory audience. Um, and they were able to cite exactly what they did, how many more people they were able to reach, how many online um events, if you will, you know, or, or networking events um, and hotline pieces they were able to have online each week. So, you know, you really have to break it down um, for your your donors and be very transparent, like where their money is going, why it's needed and how you've been able to adapt and change during COVID. So the difference is not that they need to understand because that was always the case, but they need to know a lot of specifics related to COVID, how they want they they want the story of your nonprofit over the over these last 12, 18 months. Yeah. What exactly do they want that intricate detail about how you've coped with the situation? Absolutely. Yeah. It's no longer enough just to say we had an increased need because of COVID. Yeah. <laughs> right. Those days okay. So uh folks are now planning for 2022. I know you've got a 
a, a lot yet to do for this year. I'm not wishing it away, uh, but we'll we'll say that's in that's sort of in the can as as sort of booked and being planned. And and Touchwood, uh, you you have a fantastic time every single every in every single case. What are people thinking about for 2022? What are you advising them? What are people scared about or expecting? Lay the groundwork for next year for us. Sure. So folks are trying to figure out, right, what to plan uh, for 2022. And I think it depends on a couple different factors. The two largest ones are what type of event is it, right? Is, is it a golf tournament? Then you're pretty safe to have a golf tournament in the spring, right? A lot happened in the fall all over the country um, because it's more of an outdoor event. Um, same thing with a 5K. It was definitely still mixed this fall, but spring looks very promising, especially with um, the vaccine for youth coming out. Um, indoor events, I think, are still a little bit up in the air. I am having a lot of requests from my clients to find space that is either much larger than needed so that they can still spread out um, mm-hmm. or has an outdoor component, which is tough to find in New England uh, in the springtime, right, with with our undependable weather. But in a lot of other parts of the country, outdoor venues are just um, really making their move here, which is fantastic. Um, I would say that in addition to what type of event it is, it's going to be where are you located in the country? Um, so we know so weather's, weather's a factor and, and the, uh, uh, the possibility of maintaining some social distancing, uh, even if not strictly required, a mm-hmm. lot of, a lot of people still want that. I'm still expecting, uh, just to protect themselves or, uh, protect others. Yeah. And there's still a little bit of an unknown over the winter time, um, of mm-hmm. where case load is going to be and what everyone's comfort level is going to be. So I think that after, you know, some clients move their events three, four or five times. Now they're saying we need to pick a date and stick with it. And we need to make sure that no matter what is happening, we can still have the event in this, in this place. Um, you know, with the number of folks we want. So, you know, one of the venues that I manage in downtown Boston um, can fit up to 1,000 attendees. You know, we're booking events for 200 so that folks can absolutely spread out still. Um, spaces with cathedral ceilings are, you know, becoming a huge hit. Um, and anything with, you know, windows that can actually open, um, people are <laughs> wanting to book. So it's very interesting. <laughs> review of New England architecture or, or wherever you are, just a better understanding of the, uh, the building facilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so is it, are, are people for next year thinking in terms of the content of their events? Uh, you know, the venue is one thing, indoor, outdoor, and the, and, and, and the space available. But from a content perspective, have you seen um, folks trying to uh, be more inventive about the type of, of things that they're actually going to do or, you know, just sort of keeping things as conventional as possible and familiar, or is there no particular trend? Uh, that's a good question. I think it goes back to my recommendation for my clients of, you know, remove, you know, really think through everything and what do you still need? Um, I think that the virtual format forced a lot of um, nonprofit organizations to have a shorter, tighter program, um, you know, at a, at a dinner, you had your audience captured. They weren't going to get up usually in the middle of your program. So if your program ran on 45 minutes, an hour, an hour and 15, an hour and 25, it was people expect, okay, that's what it was. 
But on a virtual event, you knew that if you dragged on and didn't get to the point, folks were going to sign off and, you know, log off and shut up their computer. So many of my clients, um, I was really, I don't want to say ruthless, but I made them think about every minute that we had in a recorded or a live program that was virtual. Is it important? Um, How does it tell your story? And how does it um, engage your donors so that they want to support your organization, your mission, and at the end of the night, they want to give? And I think that that practice showed a lot of nonprofits um, beyond just my clients that it's possible to have a shorter, tighter program that is exciting um, to your attendees. And I really hope that that will stick around. And what do they learn through that? I mean, I imagine that was quite challenging for some folks who said, we've been doing this this way for so long and it works and what's familiar and we're in this up and down situation we want to have something familiar. If we throw if we throw that out, it's not us anymore. It's not our event. It's not the annual thing. You know, it loses its identity. What what did people do you think imagine aside from going through some minor trauma there? <laughs> what did they learn uh, from it? What what sort of different things are they doing then? What did they throw out that surprised you? Um, good question. I think that that was their response, right? So many executive directors I worked with said that, but we need 15 minutes to tell her, but why, why do you need 15 minutes to tell your story? Let's use some really great visuals, um, bring in a videographer. I worked more than ever with videographers to produce really tight, concise, um, videos. Um, even though we were short on new footage, um, you know, to, to illustrate what is happening at nonprofit organizations. And I think that they saw that that worked and that longer isn't always better. And that a talking head for 15 minutes is, you know, not the most effective presentation type. Right. Okay. So more, more shift to video, which obviously is a, is, is technologically something you can share with both an online audience and a live audience mm-hmm. simultaneously without too much difficulty. Yes. And I think folks also learned that, you know, if you're going to have an in-person event, um, you know, live speakers is very important. However, you can still bring somebody in with a pre-recorded clip and the power that you then have is right, the, the, the power to edit. So you can control um, a presenter or a guest speaker in a way that you never could before if they're live on stage. Um, and, you know, that could be a good thing. So you can ask some really great supporters that couldn't be there. It no longer is going to feel strange for somebody who's really important to the organization that couldn't make it to send in a video message and have it played and have it be powerful. And with the use of video, our Nonprofits now packaging anything for after, you know, you have, if you sign up for uh, a, a, a webinar, as often people can't make it the time, they yeah. register anyway, because they know they'll watch the replay on, you know, 1.5 speed or something like that uh, when they get a chance. Uh, and, and are people thinking about trying to reach people in an asynchronous way? Uh, with the event collateral and assets, if that makes sense. I'm not using too much jargon there. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that absolutely makes sense. Um, folks are, you know, they're realizing that they have this content, this online content no more that they can add to their website. Um, the other power with that is that you might have a 45 minute full program, but what were the highlights? Show them that, send that video out in the email of, you know, two minutes of what happened that evening so that they are, 
you know, that maybe they're not able to dedicate the full 45 minutes to sit down and watch it another time. Some are, but that two minute clip that you can then share, you know, on all of your channels becomes really mm-hmm. powerful. Um, and folks can then send that up to their networks. So make it easy for your donors to watch it and, and get the highlights. And, you know, not everything is a highlight. And it, I mean, it seems to me that it gives an opportunity for nonprofits to spread the way the conversation happens. So rather than focusing everything and it's, it's the night of the Friday the 13th and it's going to happen from this time to this time. And yeah, you want that type program, but when it's done, it's done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people have a personal experience, but that, that may you know ideally linger in the memory and, and so on. Uh, but with these other additional assets and a lot of video, you can spread how people engage with you, even so that you know, maybe maybe the one event that you had every year becomes two smaller, t- more tightly focused uh, 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 events in the year rather than the one. Yeah, that's all entirely possible. Um, it also allows nonprofits to spread out their investment. So, you know, they it was for some um, maybe we were reducing the food and beverage right cost of their, that budget line on because we weren't having an in-person event, but we were adding like a, a much heftier videography Um, budget line item. And, uh, you know, we figured out how to use that, like you said, not just for the night of the 13th for this 45 minutes. How does that piece have some longevity? How can you recut it? How can you reuse it in donor meetings? Um, How can you use it like on your social media channels? So what can you do to really get the most out of the the footage that you've captured? So from a budgeting perspective, when people are looking through 2020 to 2022 and beyond the sort of the new world of events. Let's just, let's just be optimistic and say we're sort of post COVID or in a situation where it's a stable COVID situation rather than a, 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 a an uncertain one that makes it difficult to plan. How should people change the way they're thinking about their budget? Are they shifting things to technologies? A lot of technology is very intimidating and expensive in, in to many people. How are you managing that element, that those those budget shifts, and what's it look like? Um, great question, and I think you know for twenty twenty two to get back to it, I think that a lot of nonprofits that I'm speaking with are looking to achieve a hybrid model because they're not quite ready yet. Um, to they don't want to lose the audience that they built up virtually so that's really important they're saying we have to have this in-person event because people want it and there's a need and we want to get back to it but we can't forget about all of these new donors that are going to tune in because it's virtual Um, and that does make it very expensive because you know you need to bring in um, a quality platform uh, to do that but also in the room, you know, you need to bring in video cameras so that you can live stream most likely to the platform. So I'm yeah, working on a <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So I'm working on um, a conference in Washington, D.C. in January. Um, Pre-COVID, it was 1,300 in person, a multi-day conference with the Capitol Hill Day and 80 workshop sessions and three main stage plenaries. Last year, we brought it all online and we had about 3,000 virtual attendees. This year, it's hybrid. Um, so we are looking at the technology piece. We need to have really great plenary sessions, but they need to be live streamed. We need to have multiple ca- angle um, camera angles in the room, um, plus a switcher so that folks can see you know, what's happening on the screens in the room. Plus, we want to make sure that the audience in person and online can interact with each other. So we're looking at all of those elements, and it can be um, more costly. 
And I would say, you know, really take a look at your ticket structure and what that looks like. Um, so many people at first were offering um, free tickets to anything that was happening, any conference that was virtual. And I have seen a little bit of a shift away from that. And the big piece is, you know, to, to pay for the technology that is needed to put on a quality program. Yeah, I've seen that too, where people are, uh, it's it's free to, to, to log on and listen and, and see maybe one view. But if you want the full interactive experience, uh, so you get the slides and you get the uh, recordings and you get all these other things and an opportunity to ask questions and so on, then it's there's a charge for that, mm-hmm. which I guess makes makes sense. And, and And as an industry, there's an expectation, I guess, between you and your colleagues that we'll just continue to learn how this evolves uh, over over the next 12 to 18 months. Absolutely. And I think when people are talking right now about 2022, they're talking about spring 2022. No one even wants to venture into fall or what next winter looks like. It's, it's baby steps, right? So I think yeah. planning timelines have been, they're just so ridiculously condensed now so that you can make the right choices and not have to plan and replan. So from from a advi- advisor's perspective, if you're, again, yeah. you're speaking to a, a new or prospective client and they say, you know, where's this going to be in a, in a year? And I know you can't, you know, can predict everything, but, you know, if people saying to you, when is it going to be- get back to normal? And really now it's a different normal. It's not going back. It's going mm-hmm forward to somewhere different. (laughs) Um, But again, we're just looking for a situation where it's relatively stable. So you can look 12, perhaps 18, 18 uh, months in advance. Do you see any, any major trends that uh, will significantly change the way nonprofits ought to be thinking about events? Will they be, will there be more technology um, and uh, a different way of, of entertaining people or is it really, you know, just an incre- just incremental changes that we would expect and tweaking as we go forward? That's a really good question. Um, I, you know, I think that virtual components are here to stay, um, whether that be hybrid or some events are just better suited to, for fully virtual experiences. So, you know, not every event has to be something that's in person. Um, So I think that'll be a big shift. I do think, too, that we're going to see um, a spike, just like we saw a spike in donations for virtual events when everybody shifted that way. I'm again, it's hard to predict, but I do think that there'll be a bit of a spike in event attendance when we finally are back in person. People will be excited to get in their car, to get dressed up, to go out, um, to have really great cocktails and conversations. Warmer cities have seen that already, haven't they? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we're waiting up here in New England, but um, I think that there will be an increase in excitement um, that will translate into funds raised on-site in-person events. Um, So I'm really looking forward to that and hoping that that is true. Um, for the sake of a lot of my clients. Um, but then how do you keep that momentum going, right? Um, so that you're not constantly having up and down years. So I think it'll be important to have in-person events and for a lot of nonprofits to sort of reestablish um, their fundraising calendar. So many things shifted. They, you know, Originally you had an event in the spring, you moved it to the fall of 2020 in hopes that things would be normal and open and they weren't. And so then you had to have a fall event and a spring event the next year. So I think we're waiting for um, fundraising and event cycles to balance out a little bit again too. 
but some will have just changed, right? They might find something is better at a different time of year or, or, or what have you. Um, it, it, do you, do you see a return? And maybe this hasn't, hasn't, uh, ceased, but I always got in a sense that within, say, a metropolitan area, uh, there was, I wouldn't say it's not, a, I guess it's probably over egging it to call it an arms race, but there was, uh, I always felt with, with events, uh, a sort of challenge to have, there's sort of the best of the spring or the best in the, mm -hmm. the fall season. <laughs> it sounds like a, you know, it's like the social calendar, but, you know, nonprofit yeah. events. And I know a lot of those, uh, the people who, uh, are attracted, you know, are, are to the core mission of the of the nonprofit, but they're but they're interested in going to an event, and so there was one of the criticisms, if you will, during uh, COVID when people were no longer hosting those uh, events of those of those types was that we we had fewer people come, but they were our people, and they really wanted to be here because they care about us. They weren't um, paying for an extravagant night out. Uh, and 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 saying it's okay because for a good cause, so that that sort of element of the events diminished. And I'm wondering, has that returned already? Uh, did it never really go away? Are we going to see that sort of um, you know events competition uh, re reemerge? I, mean, I imagine it's good for your business if that happens. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a great question. Um, I did. I do think it went away. Um, as you said, I think that we were spot on with you know, um, events retain their core donors and folks that were really close to the organization because you didn't have the ability for a couple who is maybe a chair of the event or very close to the organization to purchase a table and invite eight friends to come and learn about it and donate, but to be there, right? You just had that one couple. Um, attend the event. Right. So I do think um, that we'll be looking forward to that. And I think that there'll be some reshuffling. Who's going to come back strong? Who's going to reinvent themselves so that they are one of the top events? Um, I think that remains to be seen. Um, you know, during this time, there have been such a shuffling of venues and vendors as well mm -hmm. um, that there's an opportunity to, you know, there have been venues that opened in uh, the winter of 2020 that folks haven't really ever been to. So who is going to book those venues at the right time to actually have an event and entice folks to come out because it's new and exciting? Um, you know, some nonprofits have used the same vendors year and in and year out, maybe because they had, you know, they were a donor or a supporter, but some of those vendors aren't here anymore. So right. it's going to cause a lot of folks to go out and do the research and get the new bids. And it's, um, you know, potentially an interesting time for vendors to capture and align themselves with some new nonprofits that they are, really want to support and, and be a fan of. So there is a need for nonprofits to budget time-wise as well as financially just to, to review how much of their own time they can spend to a certain extent, particularly with regard to the technology, they may not have, very unlikely to have the skills in-house. So that's obviously a, a greater dollar amount going out in terms of the budget. Um, but they may have time, be able to use their time in a different way. Uh, but again, as you said, asking those tough questions, do we really need to do this uh, or, or not and, and, and what's working? So a bit more experimental, really. Absolutely. And and also to reexamine the, the fundraising mechanisms, if you will, for an event. So are you going to have just, you know, a fund a cause, right? It's great. Are you still going to have a large silent auction with 150 items? Um, you know, so many of my clients saw such a 
sharp decrease in companies that were donating because they were hard hit by the pandemic. So, you know, really re-examine that and, and what portion of your um, fundraising budget came in from all of those different mechanisms and what can you do differently? Right. And technology um, is, is there, from a technological perspective, is there still uh, a major challenge or a major problem or, or, or most of the platforms and vendors seem to figure it out? I mean, it still might be quite expensive and, and maybe costs will go down as, as, as more uh, platforms figure it out and it becomes more competitive. But uh, are there any outs major outstanding technological barriers for nonprofits to, to think through or force them to not do some of the things that they'd like to do? That's a good question. I think at this point, a lot of folks have caught up, um, a lot of the different technology suppliers. Um, what you saw right away is that folks were using Zoom in a way that it wasn't really meant for, um, but it worked and it was okay right away. I mean, you and I have both used Yachtme. So those uh, um, vendors that were established pre-pandemic to have virtual events sort of came out on top very quickly. But, you know, in the last, I would say, at least six months, um, a lot of the main technology suppliers that have already been working with nonprofit organizations um, have caught up and realized that if they're going to compete and they're going to retain any market share, then they need to come out with a virtual platform um, that's going to do something for them. Um, but there's still clear winners in my mind um, about, you know, technology companies that are doing it the right way and, and are really um, providing great services. Right. Okay. And then um, uh, final question, are you seeing nonprofits learn anything from the way that they're hosting events that is changing their ideas about how they should um, conduct their everyday business, how their boards meet, how they sometimes, you know, are looking at programs so that, Oh, if we could do this in an event, actually we could, we could, introduce this to our programs why couldn't we support people in this particular way have you have you come across much of that yeah actually um a lot of it right so folks realized that um you don't need to be just like you're not working in a physical location anymore with your colleagues that folks are meeting virtually and they're getting in some cases a lot better, higher attendance. Um, so I have some clients that had, you know, national board meetings in different places around the country. You know, they're thinking about returning to that, but, you know, frankly, the virtual component that they'd always thought in the past would never work is working because it's, it's happening for all of their, you know, the corporations. Um, and there's definitely, you know, some services can be provided virtually with some of my nonprofits. Others, you know, they were very much ready to be to provide those services in person or given the nature of them never stopped. But there's just more flexibility now with um, being able to work with folks. It also depends on um, the population that they're serving and whether sure. or not those individuals have the technological capabilities to be able to interact with the nonprofit. Right. Okay. And is that is that a uh, an opportunity for event uh, folks like you who who concentrate on nonprofits and, and work with that particular community to uh, expand what you do on a, a sort of a more permanent basis? You mean to work with them for maybe virtual programming and events? Yeah, doing in doing uh, you know some of those virtual board meetings, uh, yeah, things we, like that. 
Yeah, I mean, we've definitely been doing um, many more smaller events for that. We just did an annual meeting for one of our clients that beforehand they would have handled it all in-house because it was for 40 attendees. But because it was now virtual and they had multiple speakers and a chat section, they needed somebody to moderate it so that their staff could participate in what it was. So we're definitely seeing some um, additional services needed. Right. Okay. Um, any final words that we should that you, you want to share with folks about planning events for 2022? Did we not anything we didn't cover? Good question. You know, I'm excited. I'm excited to see what the lessons, you know, what lessons everybody learned. And I want to see it put into practice. Um, I think shorter programs that are tighter and more visual, um, we're all going to see. And I'm really hoping that we see a spike in attendance, which equates to a spike in donations for, for the nonprofit world this next year. Yeah, excellent. Okay, well, folks, if you uh, need to get in touch with, uh, with Jennifer, if you want to find out more about her services, where can people reach you? Um, sapphireevents.com and I'll make sure that I leave my email in the comments. Okay, excellent. All right, thanks everyone. This has been Nonprofit Problem Solver, episode 57. Uh, next week we are back. Uh, episode 58 is all about nonprofits getting into podcasting. And we're going to have one of my uh, podcasting colleagues, Travis Johnson, join us to tell us how to do it. So I hope you can be there live on LinkedIn, uh, YouTube, and Facebook at 11 a.m. Eastern next week. See you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast. Today, I spoke to Jennifer Sapphire Whitman, founder of Sapphire Events. Check them out at sapphireevents.com. This podcast has been expertly produced by Glenn Munoz at PodPro Audio. Making professional podcasting easy. Go to podproaudio.com. You can join future conversations live by visiting nonprofitproblemsolver.com. Connect with Kev on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. For more information, visit kevkayat.com. Because good causes deserve better results.